A note before we begin. Today's case is still open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. When we talk about open cases, we often have to appeal to the only people left, the public. Acquaintances, people in the community, and anyone who might have had an idea of where this person could have gone. But the people we need to reach aren't always paying attention. We live in a world that prioritizes certain stories, while others are ignored or forgotten, even by the investigators who are supposed to be solving the case. Today's story is one where resources and support could be the difference between answers and silence. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like to introduce you to the most gregarious college student you've probably never heard of. Heading to campus one day, he left his apartment and was never heard from again. His name is Henry Baltimore Jr. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm not from the Midwest, but I know that out there, college football isn't just a hobby. It's a culture. Its own world that transforms fall weekends into memories. If you've ever set foot on a college campus on game day, you know what I'm talking about. It's filled with excitement and pride and adrenaline. People come for the food, the football, and of course, the halftime show. College football without a marching band is like fries without ketchup, and Michigan State is no exception. It's 1973, and Henry Baltimore is a junior at Michigan State University, and Henry's in the Spartan marching band, which, like I said, is a pretty big deal. 
I'm not being cheesy when I say Henry has style with the way he steps. He's been developing it since he was in the band at Parkside High. He and his sister Laurel love to hang out and work on choreography together. These are the kinds of unique routines that get Henry noticed. He and his friend Robert James become MSU's first black drum majors. It's a proud moment for the Baltimore family, especially Laurel. She and Henry are close since she's at MSU too in grad school. They're the oldest of eight kids and the rest of their family is still in Jackson, Michigan, about 40 minutes south. And even though big families can be tricky to find your place in, Henry's beloved. His childhood friends call him a bright light. He's always at the center of the fray with a smile on his face. And for a 21-year-old college kid at a school that throws some wild parties, Henry seems really grounded. Henry's got an apartment off campus with friends and works at the MSU library. He's a psychology major and studying to be a social worker. He's an exceptional student, honors level, but still manages to take some time for himself. It's college after all. But that spring, he crosses paths with someone who completely upends his life. Henry's at a casual house party when he meets Roy Davis. It's the 70s, so no one should be surprised that there's alcohol and pot. But for whatever reason, Roy Davis gets the idea that Henry may be dealing marijuana, which to be clear, he's not. He's just a college kid who likes to have fun. Still, at some point after this party on March 3rd, Roy and another man show up to Henry's apartment and rob him at gunpoint. Henry's the only one home. He's tied to his bed and pistol whipped. Then they search his apartment. Apparently, they ask him, where's the dope? When they don't find any pot, Roy is visibly angry. He steals $110 in cash and a slew of items, including Henry's watch and golf bag. Obviously, this leaves Henry rattled. The assault was completely unexpected. He and Roy were friendly at the party. When Henry tells his roommates and family what happened, they urge him to report it to the police. But he's really wary, so he doesn't. Henry's probably afraid Roy will retaliate. And while we can't confirm that Roy Davis actually made threats during the burglary, I understand why Henry was still scared. When your sense of safety is shattered, it's hard not to feel like it might happen again. According to his roommates, Henry's so worried about the assault that he becomes incredibly quiet and withdrawn. Henry's dad notices too. He insists they go to the police. So 10 days later, Henry finally reports the robbery to the East Lansing Police Department. Within the month, Roy is arrested and charged with armed robbery, but he's released on bond. This creates a problem because Roy obviously knows where Henry lives. And once he's released, Roy goes back to the apartment to talk to him. It's hard to discern what the tone of their conversation is because it seems like Roy is both pleading and threatening Henry. He wants the charges dropped or reduced because an armed robbery conviction means serious prison time. Roy tells Henry that he should downplay the incident in court or better yet, recant his testimony entirely. And according to Henry's roommate, Roy also insinuates that he can still hurt Henry. And the strong arming works. 
Henry goes back to the East Lansing Police Department and tries to retract his statement about the robbery. He just wants the case dropped. But by this point, it's too late. The state of Michigan is already pursuing a criminal case, and Henry still has to testify. Henry doesn't know what to do. It's a lose-lose scenario. If he testifies, Roy could retaliate, and he's clearly capable of violence. But if Henry doesn't show up, he faces legal consequences, even though he did nothing wrong. Henry chooses not to go to the pretrial hearing. Though I'm not sure I can even call this a true choice, because according to Henry's roommate, Roy actually comes to his apartment on the day of the hearing and sits with Henry to make sure he doesn't go. As a result, Henry is fined $50 for not showing up. And sure, maybe that doesn't sound like a ton of money, but in 2022, that's the equivalent of around $300. In college, I couldn't afford a fine like that on short notice. Plus, Henry served a warrant that says he has to testify. Another hearing is scheduled and Henry shows up for this one. From what I found, he just reiterates what happened. Roy threatened him at gunpoint and robbed the apartment. Word gets around after this hearing, and Roy returns once again to Henry's apartment. And I want to stop here, because you're probably thinking how absurd it is that no one is protecting Henry. It is. Henry is vulnerable, and his attacker knows it. According to Henry's roommate, Roy tells Henry threateningly, quote, I ain't got nothing to lose at this point. According to the police, Roy also called Henry multiple times with similar follow-up threats. Once again, Henry is left in an impossible situation. He can't hide how stressed he is, especially from his sister, Laurel. When they go home to spend Memorial Day weekend with their family, she can just tell something isn't right. Henry's always the one cracking jokes and keeping the banter going, and he's completely silent. Finally, he tells Laurel he's really nervous about going to court. Honestly, who wouldn't be in this scenario? There's no extra protection being offered to Henry to testify, and I don't know how much security could have been offered. This was 1973, when the witness security program had only been around for a few years, and that's usually reserved for people testifying against major criminals in federal cases, not minor robberies but state crimes can be eligible, especially if the court has reason to believe a witness is in danger. It may have taken a little more legwork, but I think local law enforcement could have at least offered Henry a security patrol by his house or even temporarily relocated him. Because the truth is, Henry is unsafe. Laurel doesn't know what else to say other than to reassure her brother, you'll be okay. She knows it's not all that comforting, but it's all she can do. That's the last time Henry and Laurel speak. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
May 30th, 1973 is a Wednesday. Like usual, Henry and his roommates have class or work. From what I can tell, when everyone heads out from the apartment that morning, Henry's on his way to the campus library. Henry's roommates start to trickle home over the course of the afternoon, and by 6 p.m., it's time for dinner. They usually all pitch in and cook together, but Henry's still not home. In fact, no one has heard from Henry all day. Laurel was expecting him to call too, since he needed her to type up a paper for one of his final exams. At first, she's not super concerned. Sometimes his job at the library ties him up. She expects he'll call eventually, but he doesn't. Laurel's calls go unanswered all evening until finally Henry's roommates call her back. They tell her no one's seen Henry since the morning. Inexplicably though, his keys, wallet, and car are still at the apartment. Laurel hears this and her stomach drops. She knows the next hearing for Roy Davis's case is coming up soon and remembers how worried Henry was about testifying. She and her father go to Henry's apartment and they find everything as he left it. The next day, May 31st, Henry's family reports him missing to the East Lansing Police Department. And let me say off the bat, the way the officers respond is not acceptable. They take down the details, but basically shrug when the family asks what they should do next. The police suggest that Henry's off with a girlfriend after a wild night, and he'll pop up soon. In fact, they don't even want to classify Henry as missing until another 24 hours have passed. I've said this time and time again. There is no proper amount of time you have to wait. If police tell you that's the only option, seek a supervisor or try another local police station. Apparently, police also imply that Henry fled to avoid showing up at Roy Davis's trial, which begins the next day. Laurel pushes back against this suggestion. She knows her brother. Even if he did want to hide, he wouldn't go AWOL without telling anyone. If anything, he would probably look for safety with his family, not run from them. And she knows that Roy had threatened to kill Henry. If police should look into anything, it's Roy Davis. Now, this part of the case is hard because the details are so sparse, but I do know one important thing. There were two men looking for Henry the day he went missing. When Henry's neighbors briefly stopped at home that morning, they found an unfamiliar car parked in their spot outside. And inside the building, a pair of black men were in the hallway, knocking on Henry's door threateningly. They even asked the neighbors where Henry was. I know what you're thinking. Is one of these men Roy Davis? Well, the truth is, we don't know. He does have an alibi. When Henry goes missing, Roy was apparently with his mother in Flint, 50 miles away. Now, I'm not sure where exactly they were or what they were doing, but regardless, the East Lansing PD accepts Roy's alibi. Take that for what you will. Obviously, a mother isn't the most airtight alibi. She might've had reason to lie to protect her son, but on the other hand, she'd be putting herself at risk by vouching for Roy if it wasn't true. I will say that Roy having an alibi doesn't mean he's completely in the clear. 
Remember, there were two men at Henry's apartment the day he was assaulted in March, and two men were at his apartment the day he went missing. Roy wasn't working alone. And regardless of who actually made Henry disappear, it would still work to Roy's advantage if Henry wasn't around to testify. In interviews with newspapers, Roy maintains his innocence. In fact, he says that out of everyone, he'd be most grateful for Henry to resurface. He's aware of what we're all thinking. It looks bad. Roy also denies that he threatened Henry after the pretrial hearing. He said that the two were friendly enough that they'd played cards together just a week later. Now, I'm not sure I believe any of that because inevitably Roy's trial does go forward and without Henry's testimony, things go pretty well for Roy. Without Henry, the details were all hearsay. So Roy is only found guilty of attempted armed robbery. Even though a completed armed robbery could have carried a life sentence, Roy only receives six months in county jail. With their only suspect now in prison, the East Lansing police have a choice to make. They can either dig further into Roy and his inner circle and confirm he wasn't involved in Henry's disappearance, or they can move on. They choose to move on. And the reason why is a lot bigger than Henry. The reality is when Henry disappears, America is very racially polarized, especially in the state of Michigan. This is just six years after the 1967 Detroit riots. After a predominantly white police force raided a black nightclub, protests erupted. Michigan's governor deployed the National Guard and called on army troops to quell the violence. Many remember the riots as a time of extreme police brutality, arson, and unnecessary civilian death. Detroit was a microcosm of a lot of issues we're still facing today, namely systemic racism. And in terms of this case, the sheer fact is, Henry Baltimore was a black man living in a very white part of Michigan. These aren't perfect stats, but in 1980, white people in East Lansing outnumber black people by more than 10 to one. And everyone is aware of it. One of Henry's roommates comes right out and says that the police don't care as much about the case because Henry's a black man. By the end of June, 1973, East Lansing police are struggling to piece together more leads. They literally say, we've drawn a blank. It's a heartbreaking moment and no one is quite sure how to keep the momentum of the search going, especially when the police, the agency with the most resources to do so, are coming up short. Soon, Henry's hometown of Jackson, Michigan puts out a $1,000 reward for anonymous tips. This is published in the same newspaper Henry used to deliver as a kid. It's a smart move. Sometimes money can be the incentive people need to come forward. But in this case, it doesn't generate any useful leads. I wish I could say the stalemate improves and that better police work or new leads offer some progress in Henry's case. They don't. For whatever reason, it seems like Roy and his associates aren't on the suspect list anymore. Without any new information, all the Baltimore family can do is theorize. 
Obviously, it's possible that Roy Davis kidnapped Henry with the help of an accomplice. It's also possible that Roy paid two other people to kidnap Henry for him. When it comes to proving or debunking either one of these theories, it seems like the two witnesses, Henry's neighbors, could be the most helpful. But the problem is, as the case ages, even they don't quite remember what happened. According to the sheriff, Scott Rigglesworth, who's since taken over the case, when he re-interviewed Henry's neighbors in 2004, they had no recollection of their report of the two men at his door whatsoever. This murkiness only shows that in order to solve Henry's case, the community needs to find more witnesses. As of fall 2014, local outlets have tried to incentivize people to come forward. The city of Lansing and Michigan State University each offered rewards of $5,000. To my knowledge, neither has been claimed. So as far as the East Lansing Police Department goes, Henry is still their oldest cold case. And he didn't have to be. If you've been keeping up with this show, my other podcast, Voices for Justice, or your newsfeed lately, you've probably heard this term. Missing white woman syndrome. Especially with the media zeroing in on stories like Gabby Petito's, we've seen just how large the gap is in covering missing persons cases. News outlets and TV tend to focus on affluent, often white, victims. Black and brown people do not receive the same urgency. And as their families point out, this lack of support can be the reason why their cases go cold. This is just unacceptable. Missing is missing, regardless of your gender, race, or sexual identity. And what I've learned from researching this case is that we literally haven't done anything substantial to close this gap in the past 50 years. Black and brown people who go missing today are facing the same systemic issues as Henry. And then some. We have more outlets to raise awareness for their disappearances, from social media to nonprofits to podcasts just like this. And yet the problem persists. I always say a person is never a number, but in this case, numbers paint a very clear picture of how severe the gap is. I mentioned this in my coverage of Phoenix Colden, but it's sadly relevant here too. 2020 census data shows that nearly 40% of missing persons are people of color, yet African-Americans make up only 13% of the population. Simply put, that's a far larger portion of a much smaller population, and yet they're getting the least amount of resources. For these families, it's an impossible hand to be dealt. It forces them to finance their own searches and turn to private investigators, nonprofits, and community outreach when police investigations go cold. Take Henry's family. They held a press conference in November of 2014, encouraging anyone with even the slightest bit of information to come forward. Henry's nephew cited the difficulty of being the second generation of his family that doesn't know what happened to his uncle, how they wanted to put that trauma to rest after 40 years. To help them, we have to confront the institutional bias. 
because even the people whose job it is to find a missing person can fall into the trap of racial stereotypes. The detective on Henry's case at the time, James Kelly, was quoted in the Lansing State Journal as saying, he has either done a good job of hiding himself or someone else has done a good job of hiding him. I can't help but get angry at such a callous comment. We know that Henry feared for his life and was threatened multiple times. There are literally no signs he planned to hide himself. Not to mention, he never turned up even after Roy Davis was in jail. Detective Kelly may not have said it explicitly, but this kind of comment is filled with subtext. His words fit with a stereotype investigators often place on young black men. They wanted to portray Henry as a kid in with the wrong crowd, that he was complicit in his own disappearance rather than a victim. Nonprofit organization, The Sentencing Project, laid out what type of consequences this can have. On paper, our criminal justice system is supposed to protect everyone's rights. But quote, in practice, the rules assure that law enforcement prerogatives will generally prevail over the rights of minorities and the poor. For Henry, the police made assumptions based on his race and his lifestyle. A college kid who occasionally smoked pot, they overlooked that he was a young band geek new to living on his own. A smart kid, but not used to dealing with dangerous situations. He wasn't a gangster or runaway, and he was deeply loved. According to his sister, Laurel, Henry's disappearance left an incredible hole in their family. The lack of answers deeply affected both her parents, who died without knowing what happened to Henry. I feel for their loss. It's a heaviness that can seem insurmountable to live with. And yet, despite all the unfairness of how this case has been handled, Henry's family has shown so much grace. His relatives have remained open and willing to talk to documentary crews and reporters. Even Henry's nephew said that if his uncle was kidnapped, the family has since forgiven the kidnappers. They just want to know what happened. I do too. I want answers to the questions that are still left hanging. Like, did Roy Davis drive a green car? Like the one Henry's neighbors saw outside of his apartment on the day he went missing? Or where exactly was Henry last seen? Did he make it to campus? Did he actually return home before his roommates that evening? These are questions I can't answer. And had Henry been given the protection he needed back in 1973, we wouldn't have to ask them because he wouldn't have disappeared and he likely would be with his family today at 69 years old. However, I do believe someone out there may be able to tell us what happened to Henry. So please, if you know anything, reach out. For anyone else, be critical of the news you consume and who that coverage prioritizes. Black and brown people are still disappearing at unequal rates and afforded unequal resources. That matters because when it comes to missing people, there are enough resources and support that no one's case should be pushed to the back burner. Next episode. 
a young woman disappears after crashing her car on a dark, winding road in February 2004. The news sets the internet on fire. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Henry Baltimore Jr., please contact either the East Lansing Police Department or Crime Stoppers. All reports can be anonymous. And if you're looking to learn more about the obstacles in Black missing persons cases and how you can help bring awareness to their families, I would highly recommend starting with the HBO documentary, Black and Missing. I'd also like to especially thank the crew behind What Happened to Henry, a documentary short which was released in 2020. Their interviews helped give me a glimpse into Henry's life and how he's remembered by his family. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Edmire and Kate Gallagher fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.